Welcome back once again to the Out of the Main Book Club. I'm here with my co-host and reader of the two of us, yep. John. How are you? Ready to turn the page into part two. Ah, good. Of course, we're talking about the Ted Templeman book, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, which I guess we should credit the author, Greg, is it Renoff or Renoff? He said he's kind of a prolific author in this According to the credits genre. in there, he actually did a book about uh, Van Halen. Van Halen as well, and, uh, which others. I bet a bunch of people read. Yeah. So, okay, cool. Well, uh, I think where we left off last week, you teed up like a cliffhanger. Yes, one thing I, well, you never mind. I'll go back to that at the end. I did want to say something about the book, but okay. I'll, we'll, we'll get that when we wrap up. So, yeah, so the cliffhanger was. Is that another cliffhanger, by the way? You're no, becoming a I'm going to cut all this, this. out. <laughs> <laughs> so, the cliffhanger is that uh, we're going to get into the Nicolette Larson part of the story. And it gets kind of fun here because Ted is at this point pretty established. He's got a great roster of musicians around him, and he's uh, well up the ladder at Warner Brothers. And um, he's starting to hang out with Linda Ronstadt. I remember I mentioned that Linda Ronstadt sang on the Carly Simon record. and Jealous much, by the way? (laughs) A producer? Uh, meeting Linda Ronstadt's like preppy. he's living your life. Oh my gosh, he is. <laughs> oh, Anyways, man. so go ahead. I got to recover for a minute. Uh, okay. Um, so he's hanging out with Linda. I didn't say romantically though. Oh, they they okay. became uh, pals, so to speak. And she, at the time, was dating of all people Governor Jerry Brown. I don't know if he was Is that governor, the governor the of California. Governor of California. I don't know if he was governor at the time, but Jerry Brown, okay. you know, moving his way up politics. And yeah. Jerry Brown was kind of a bit of a moonbeam child kind of guy. I mean, he was, aside from whether you liked his politics or not, he was just a, uh, he wasn't a typical straight lace kind of guy. You know, he hung with musicians. He was just apparently a blast to be around, but he was in his element around artists more than he was around politicians. Mm hmm. Anyway, somehow he became governor of California, and I suppose that makes sense. But at the time, he's dating Linda. And Linda is pals with Ted, and she would have, hey, Ted, come on over, let's uh, hang out for a couple hours and listen to music. That's what everybody did then and mm-hmm. out there, you know? If you want to be a good musician, you have to listen to music. If you want to be a good producer, you <laughs> yeah, have to listen true. to music. Put the Xbox yep. down and listen to music. Yeah, well, they say if you want to be a good writer, you need to read. You need to so, read. Yep. So, anyway, so here's Ted hanging out with Linda, and... Um, knock on the door, doorbell rings or whatever, and it's Jerry Brown at the door. He's there because apparently there was he was supposed to go out on a date with Linda. <laughs> he walks in and he's like, "What is going on here? I don't I, this is not what I'm into." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, so <laughs> Linda has to sort of explain the situation and that um and her and uh Jerry go out on the date and Ted just hangs out at Linda's place. I mean, that's the kind of relationship they had. Interesting. So it was a very real quick before we move on to that. Yeah. Am I remembering correctly that when we had John Hall from Orleans on, that didn't he reference the fact that he hung out with Jerry Brown too? I swear to God, that's how he kind of got into politics. I think you're right. And remember, he had Linda Ronstadt sing on yeah. one of their records. Yeah, like it's a total little yeah. circle here because they they did. He did say they spent some time out in L.A. cutting the records. So I'm sure that that was yep. when listening that to music probably. So Ted gets a call one day. From Linda, and she says, yeah, I'm at such and such a restaurant, and I'm having lunch with a friend of mine. You need to come meet this girl. Mm-hmm. And he said, she said, she's a great singer. You're going to love her. 
And this is, of course, Nicolette Larson. And Linda had taken Nicolette under her wing and was kind of trying to get her hooked into the scene. She had sung some backups for Linda Ronstadt. Mm -hmm. So she hit up Ted and said, hey, you, you need to meet this girl. And, of course, Ted was floored by her personality. Uh, she was just impossible not to love. She was a bubbly, exuberant personality, always positive mm -hmm. uh, and a great singer to boot. And what he really liked about her was that, similar to Linda, she wasn't a prolific songwriter, but had a great ear for a song, mm -hmm. you know, to pick a song. And Ted loved the idea of also being able to pick songs for his artists. Okay. He didn't necessarily want an artist that completely came in with 20 songs written for the album. He wanted to have at least enough of a, a loose enough canvas that he could, uh, you know, imprint on it. So mm -hmm. he loved that about Nicolette. Um, and he eventually gets Nicolette signed. He's going to produce the record, which leads to one of the most interesting yacht rock related stories that I think there is. Do, do tell. That, uh, well, first of all, he, he brings in some big time players on this record. You know, he brings in, you know, Bill Payne from Little Feet, Linda Ronstadt sings on it. We got J.D. Souther, we got Glenn Fry, uh, Neil Young, Lauren Wood, Rick Schlosser, Bobby Lekind. Uh, he was a uh, percussionist for the Doobie Brothers, Michael McDonald. I mean, so it's all of those people yeah. that he had known, all on this Linda or this uh, Nicolette record. But one of the tricks was that Nicolette was in a relationship with Neil Young at the time and had heard Lot of Love, mm -hmm. the song Lot of Love. And she wanted to cut that song. And every time they played it for. Ted, he couldn't figure out how to make it fit because it was very much just a kind of a lazy strum you don't kind say. of tune. Neil Young wrote a lazy right. kind of... Well, we do have a Neil Young version, so let's listen to that because that'll give us maybe an idea of the vibe of what was being presented to Ted in the first place. So that sounded like this. So now Ted is hearing that, and as much as he admits that he really likes the song, he couldn't see how to make it fit. Mm -hmm. So one day, he's getting in his car, getting ready to head up uh, the freeway on his way to the studio, and he hears this song come on the radio, and it all comes together for him. He says, oh, I heard this song, and it had the groove and the vibe and the type of chords that that song, Lot of Love, needed. And, and he said, I want to cut it like that. And that was Ace's How Long. Oh, my God. So I created a little bit of a mashup here. That's crazy. So he gets into the studio and says, this is how I want to do it. He sits down at the piano with Bill Payne, and they work out the chords. And they figure out a way to take the essence of the song that we just heard and turn it into the song that we know. But I created a mashup. So check out Here's How Long. Now, we're going to lay a lot of love over the top. Love, 
know what's crazy is you told me, I think this is coming back to me now. You told me the story before, and when I kind of was trying to hear it in my head, I'm like, mm, I don't see the connection. But then when you mash it up like that, yeah. it's like it's I only had right to do a little of bit other. of beat matching on that stuff. They, they were in the same key. I didn't have to adjust any the of same that. Same key? And it lays right over it the top. Just, the tempo was just a tiny just a bit off? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's something. That's cool. So that's how A Lot of Love came about. That's really cool. And then get Ace, do they really have anything else that people would say is yacht-worthy? Maybe I should no, go look at that. No, because they're kind of early. 72 yeah. or 73 was that album, so it'd you know, be a proto-yacht thing. But that, it gets, that that song wasn't really indicative of the rest of their style. Right. Because even Paul Carrick didn't sing everything Ace, uh, Ace did. Hmm. So, Interesting. Okay. Cool. But anyway, so Ted, obviously, that lot of love becomes a huge, huge hit for mm-hmm. her and just launches her into superstardom. And he produces the next record. And you know, as we continue with the the yachty goodness, he had uh, Michael McDonald on a song that we featured once. And uh, let's play a little of that. This is Let Me Go Love. Is it ever what it So that's from 1979, Nick of Time album. Nick of Time, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of personnel on that record too, isn't there? Pretty much a lot of the same personnel, yeah. Yep. Interesting. And so that was the second album. And there, she's pumping out an album a year probably like most of these artists. Yep, yep. 1980 uh, Radioland album. There was a song on there that I came across. and uh, Ted said something in the book that got me thinking that because in Yacht Rock we talk so much about the doobie bounce and... People point to what a fool believes, and I think they point a lot to Michael's keyboard playing on that mm-hmm. as being sort of the definitive thing, and then with the bass underneath it. But Ted always said that the groove, the feel of the Doobie Brothers came from Tehran Porter, the bass player. Hmm. And he's using Tehran on this album. Interesting. And um, so he, here we are. Nicolette Larson album, 1980. Check out the doobie bounce on this tune on a track called When You Come Around. Definitely hear that bounce. Definitely hear the bounce there. Yeah. Yep. And this is pre. What a fool believes, right? This is pre What a Fool Believes. Ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So maybe we need to put this at number one on the ASCII scale. <laughs> Center of the universe. <laughs> Center right? of the universe. <laughs> so that's nineteen eighty. Interesting. That is nineteen eighty. Yeah. So what is the What a Fool Believes come well, up? Well, that's 80, happening right? at the same time. So, you know, I, I would have to go back and say I'm not exactly sure on the timeline. It seems to me like he's probably working on the Radio Land album concurrently. With the minute by minute album, so mm. it's it's very easy to see how ideas may flow over from one session to another, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the minute by minute album, you know, that is now that we're gonna if we're gonna talk yacht rock, that is obviously where the song "What a Fool Believes" comes from, and that is the center of the universe, as you just referenced. So we need to spend a little bit of time on that one. And this album. Um, at the time, it did not go together all that easily or all that well. Uh, Michael McDonald and uh, Skunk Baxter are really in different places. Going back to the previous episode when I talked about some of the uh, Frank Zappa type of stuff that mm-hmm. um, Baxter wanted to do, 
I guess they were, he and um, Templeman were constantly butting heads because as the way Ted explains it, we'd be doing this nice moving mid-tempo R&B blue-eyed soul thing. And then Baxter would be like, well, to get into the chorus, let's do this kind of thing. You know, play some sort of whacked out jazzy atonal mm. line, dro- trying to drop that into these songs. And it's just like, you know, he couldn't tell if he was pushing his buttons, trying to get fired, or if it was just, you know, he couldn't let go of the fact that the Doobie Brothers had been a fusion and guitar-based band. Mm-hmm. And now Michael, at this point, going back to a question you had earlier, Michael is starting to be able to hear these songs in his head sort of in completion, hmm. what they ought to sound like done. And he's struggling with getting that out of his head onto tape with these other players. So Uh you've got that sort of tug of war that Michael seems to know exactly what he wants, though he wasn't like trying to take over the band, but it was his song, his composition. He would hear the way the parts should go together. And then you've got Baxter saying, well, let's throw in this crazy line, you know, and you could see how that would a lot of tension. Yeah. Right? And is this this is only a year after the preceding album, right? So we're still... Yes, and keep in mind that the previous album did not do all that well. Right. So we had uh, the Taking It to the Streets album that did very, very well. Mm-hmm. The follow-up did not do well, which increased the pressure on this one. Mm-hmm. And that's that last album was the one that was more experimental. So maybe... Right. Yeah, Michael's probably even seeing, you know, like, I think I got this. I have the formula. You don't need to overcomplicate it. So, interesting. But, you know, it wasn't all Baxter either, because if we're going to talk about what a fool believes, that the they went through at least three marathon sessions, according to Ted, and each session maybe had 8, 10, 12, 15 runs at it, trying to get the groove right. Just to this one song? To What a Fool Believes. Wow. So, again, we're, we're talking about the doobie bounce. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. S- supernatural. So, it's easy. Yeah. And they could not get this to feel right. They had, as he said, there were just stacks and stacks of two-inch tapes piled up against the wall of takes that they just didn't like or ted supposedly had notes on well the guitar part on this one's really good or the bass part on that one's really good but nothing where it ever felt together right but they knew it was a hit they they had a hit on their hands so they wouldn't probably devoted this much time and attention to it they must have but i think that you know you start to second guess yourself Mm -hmm. you get so close to something that you don't see it anymore um, isn't this the song that he co-wrote with Kenny Loggins too? This is. This is the song. And where so they maybe meet. that's part of it. Is that they 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 had to have a certain amount of belief because of you know it's written by those two guys. Right. Uh, perhaps Michael continued to really push it. I don't know. But Ted, as the producer, said it's just not grooving right. Again, hmm. going back to the bounce, it's mm-hmm. not like it just happened magically. Well, well, if you remember that Ted early on uh, was a drummer as well as singer and guitar player but drums was his first instrument oh yeah so he admits that he's always focused on the drums first and the groove and getting that right um but he just couldn't get it right and he eventually took demo tapes back to some of the uh a and r meeting sessions where a lot of the producers and stuff would sit around the big uh you know boardroom table and 
play what they've got going on and get response from other people. And he played it and, you know, he's like, I just don't know what, what, what am I not hearing? Why is this not working? Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And going back to Lenny, Lenny Warrenker, who was his mentor, and Lenny heard it and said, dude, this is fantastic. This is amazing. You have got to finish this track. So Ted's like, I, I, yeah, okay, I agree. But I have no idea where to go next, what to do hmm. next. So they go at it again the next day. And um, keep in mind that the Doobie Brothers always had two drummers. They didn't use two drummers on every song, but they had two drummers. And on the occasional song, they would actually have two drummers. Mm-hmm. You'd have one uh, drum set panned to the left, one to the right. They didn't do it all the time, but they always had the studio set up with two drum kits so that on any song, they could give that a run. So Ted goes in and sits down with the band. So you got the regular drummer, which I think may have been John Hartman at the time, um, playing and Ted's sitting in with the band because he kind of wanted to get really inside the song and get a feel for what is it I'm missing. And he's banging out with the guys and he's trying to get it and eventually goes back into the control room, sits down with his engineer buddy, Don Landy, and says, Don, I don't know. And he's like, Ted, get out there and play it. You just did it and it was killing. Is that the one that survived? So Ted goes back out there and says, all right, I'll give this a try. They get the guys together. Ted on one kit, the other drummer on the other kit. And as he said, we're just banging to save our lives. And it, he, he said, I looked up from the kit while we were playing, and I see Don giving me thumbs up through the window and just like, yeah, this is happening, this is happening. Mm. And finally, they get the groove right because Ted, the producer, sat down wow. as the second drummer. Now, they still had to you know, piece the song together from that point. So I go, we finally got the drums in the bass groove right. Um, he says they went back to some of all those other tapes to find the parts that they liked. And I don't know if they flew them in or if they went and used them and said, okay, that's how I want the keyboard part to be. And then they went and replayed it. He doesn't really go into the detail of how they assembled it, but he claims they assembled the rest of it from that pile of tapes that was stacked against the wall. So one of the tracks, the drum tracks, is Ted's. Is Ted. And does he get credit as drummer on that? I don't know. I don't think so. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. That's so, huge. Yeah, isn't that something? I mean, you, you, we think of that song, and it, it doesn't sound all that complicated, but Mm-mm. in Ted's mind, it didn't groove right. And so it was all of that that labor, mental labor by Ted, that eventually got us to what we now call the center of the Hot Rock universe. And that the Doobie Bounce. Groove, that, that, that groove, that bounce, yeah. Wow. some of the complexity is you know you go in that song you go through that doobie bounce section in the a part to like the b part that kenny loggins co-wrote with him you know it it just all sort of dissembles Mm -hmm. and then it kicks back in again i wonder if that was creating some of that like or did that is that what they discovered actually worked you know what i mean was that the problem or is that the solution good question yeah because he did say that it, it was not a difficult song but it was not an ordinary song in the sense of the roadmap, like you're yeah. suggesting. Wow. So, well, as we might expect, there was a lot of backstory to Now, Ted did to this. point out one other thing, and I would want to give us a, a quick listen to this. And uh, He points out that um, 
The groove is not just in the drums and the keys. He said that even though it's not a big part in the mix, the guitar part that Patrick Simmons plays in there, he said, is essential to the groove, and it's the glue. And he says, take a listen to the tail of verse one into the first pre-chorus. And he says, Patrick's guitar makes this track sing. really noticed that before Either the way it I. layers on top of the keys like that it really does set the groove it does it accentuates the doobie the bounce doobie bounce does he actually refer to it as the doobie bounce in the book or is that no. just a yacht rock thing that's no, a yacht rock thing okay wow well lot to that yeah and so uh that ends up doing pretty well then huh well some grammys huh they had massive success at the Grammys. What album of the year, producer of the year? I don't. I didn't write those down because we'd covered that previously. But obviously, it it essentially swept the Grammys that year in huge commercial success. But none. Yeah, but nobody in the band was expecting it. Even when it was done, they all really? kind of like, eh, I don't know. Oh man! But it also had you know, minute by minute was on there. Yeah, it wasn't just it, a one trick pony. No. It was a great record, top to bottom. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, you know... (laughs) It's really an amazing story that, you know, there were some other really great tidbits in there. The The book goes on and talks a lot about Van Halen, obviously. You know, mm-hmm. he, he cut all of their early records, really all the way up to 1984. Um, so all he, the David he, Lee Roth stuff. Almost. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and that's the thing. He really gave me a different sense for David Lee Roth. And I'm not going to cover all that because it isn't Yacht Rock, but uh, he... David Lee Roth was surprising to me. I just kind of think him of as a little bit of a, a clowny guy that mm-hmm. you know knew how to be a front man. But Ted said that when it came down to working in the studio, that David Lee Roth didn't have really great chops for singing. Didn't it was really difficult to get the vocal parts out of him. But he was a guy that came and he came to work and he came to be focused and he was brilliant with uh, being able to take a riff that Eddie had created and write lyrics and melody on top of that. And he just had a way with words. He'd go out and sit in his car, put his feet up on the dashboard with his little notebook, and he'd come back, you know, a few minutes later, and he's got hot for teacher or something, you know. Yeah. Um, but the, the level of commitment that he talks about to his craft that David Lee Roth had really surprised me. That surprises me, too, because he, he comes across as just a clown who likes the, you know, the limelight and just will do whatever you know to perform and but that's good good one of the uh famous rock uh yacht rock stories of course is that well one of these times when he was trying to write lyrics for a tune um and it was for the album 1984 that uh the song is i'll wait and 
he was even he was stuck on the lyrics and Ted brought in Michael McDonald to help him finish that song. So Michael McDonald is a co-writer of a Van Halen song. Lyrics only? Yeah, but oh. he did not get credited. Ooh, he was supposed to, and he did not get credited, and that really caused a significant riff because he eventually, he didn't blame Ted, but he took it out on Ted because Ted was sort of the connection between him. He brought him in. He didn't, he didn't know Roth or the Van Halen guys right. at all, but Ted asked him as a favor to come in and help out, and then he got screwed over. <laughs> that sucks. You know. And then does Templeman go on to produce the Michael McDonald stuff? Yes. He did the solo album. Okay. Actually, the first three solo albums. Okay. So, yeah, he was he had a long... And he didn't use any of the Doobie guys on that. That's is you know, now he's going to use more of the what we would call the yacht characters on that. Mm-hmm. You know, Porcaro and Louis Johnson, Abe Laboreal, people like that. Right. So no Doobie Brothers ever played on any of that? I don't know if none ever did. Okay. I thought that Patrick was, Simmons did it. Yeah. Maybe not. But that wasn't the primary. Up until then, he had been using the Doobie Brothers a lot as session guys on like Nicolette Larson and Carly Simon records. They became his bass band. Mm-hmm. But that was not the case. Well, that's what I'm wondering, too. Well, going uh, another riff. So does this represent like a fallout between him and the Doobie Brothers when he went solo? Or was it just he was ready, they were kind of ready, and whatever? It's kind of that. Yeah. Yeah. They, the, the band had kind of run out of gas. They did One Step Closer album, which had some nice tunes on it. it had a couple mm-hmm. of hit, modest hits. But they were kind of filling out their contract at that point. And so at what point does Tom Johnston decide he wants to tour with the band again? Because they're touring the summer together. Was it just recently, or had they been doing this for a while? Do you know? They got back together and did some like benefits in the 90s. Um, they did cut a record in 2010 where they kind of reassembled the... Um, the early band, you know, like the, as, as Ted called it, the Toulouse Street band. Uh, so the fact that they're touring this summer is not a brand new thing, mm. but um, it's probably been at least 10 years they've sort of been together. But that part didn't include Michael. The, the, the tour they're doing now, the fact that Michael and Tommy together yeah. is sort of the big news. That's cool. Well, is there other, there's got to be at least one other nugget. Um, yeah, here's a good nugget for you. Yeah. He, he actually, I know this completely disconnects t- from Yacht Rock, but he became friends with Prince because Prince was a big-time Warner Brothers artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, Prince was given creative control on his stuff from the day that he was signed, you mm-hmm. know. And he, he was just given, essentially given the keys to Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he could come and go as he pleased. He had access to a back entrance so that he could come and go and not <laughs> be seen and... Um, he was often needed a place where he could sit and listen to demos that or mixes that they had worked on. And so Ted Templeman often let Prince use his office to do that, to sit and listen to tapes. Uh, but one time Prince actually asked him for some advice. Well, Prince asked him uh, to produce him. This was after... Really? Well, Prince did, had done 1999. Self-produced. Self-produced. It was a strong record, obviously. Huge. Him, had some good successes... But at the same time, and I talk about competition, Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Right. And he's like, Michael Jackson is knocking me out of this number one spot, and it pisses me off. <laughs> Ted, I want you to produce me because I want to knock Michael out of number one. Oh, no. 
that's no problem. Right. No, no pressure either. Right? Yeah, who, who's the other guy's producer? Yeah. Quincy? Quincy. Right. <laughs> oh, well, then maybe I can't do it. Well, he said that's what Ted's advice was. He said, look, the reason Michael's knocking you out of number one is because Quincy Jones is producing him. And he should be producing you because what Quincy knows how to do, how many times have we talked about oh, this? Yeah. He knows how to cover multiple genres, even within one song. The reason Michael was knocking Prince out of number one is because Michael was much more of a cross-genre phenomenon. Well, they're playing them on every radio station up and down the dial. Correct. Yep. Doesn't take his advice and hire Quincy Jones to produce his Does he even record. contemplate it, do you know? Did he reach out to Quincy or... Nothing is said. Can you imagine that? Would, what a combination that would have been. But, but what did Prince go and do? He went and did Purple Rain album. Yeah. Oh, now, yeah. what did he do on Purple Rain album? Suddenly, mm-hmm. his music is taking on more than just an R&B sound. For sure. Right? I mean, the song Let's Go Crazy, that was the first release, In right? Itself. All yeah. kinds of guitar. Yep. Rock, that's a rocker. Yep. Um, I mean, God. the song Purple Rain is an anthemic ballad. You know, it's Rock just, ballad, yeah. Yeah. In, uh, Almost like a faithfully journey, you know. It's like kind of in that category. His tune with Apollonia, um, "Take, Take Me, Me with, with You." you is That's a just a straightforward pop hit, like Raspberry Beret. Darling Nikki is some crazy, yeah. you know. So there's every genre practically represented popularly. That's even a word yes. on that record. So he took the advice. He just didn't did hire it himself. Quincy. Yeah, he did it himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of flattering though to Ted Templeman. He's got to realize that he kind of made that happen. Yep, yep. So, Michael, um, he, I, I just can't get over the way that the Van Halen guys screwed Michael over. And it reminded me of when we did the Steve Lukather book. Mm. If you recall, when Lukather did a solo album, and he was buddies with Eddie Van Halen at the time, and he asked Eddie to play on the record, and Eddie said, well, I don't want to play guitar, I'll play bass. right? <laughs> and... Alex Van Halen calls up Lukather out of the blue and just reads him the riot act and swearing up and down and saying that you cannot use a Van Halen guy on your record. And if you if you use that bass stuff that my brother did, you cannot credit his name. Oh my they, God. Had, they were so protective of the, being this rock band that the idea of being session musicians was, was not going to be allowed. So you got Alex browbeaten... Uh, Lukather. So I'm wondering if the reason that Michael McDonald did not get credited goes back to Alex Van Halen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're probably right, because we don't have songwriters. Yeah, come we're, on. We write our own tunes. Come on, we're rockers. We don't have... What are we bringing in this guy for? Yeah. Well, I thought you were going to mention the other snubbing is when, you know, they basically, Lukather and, was it Jake Graydon that he worked on that with? To fix um, Beat It? Oh, beat it, yeah. Because yeah. Eddie Van Halen did his own thing on the solo, and he didn't play over the right parts, and he kind of... Right. So it Quincy did him called... and David Page, yeah. Yeah, David Page, Page. Yeah. So Quincy They had calls, to do the fix. They fixed the whole thing. They're at the Grammys. Everybody comes up to oh, accept yeah. the Grammy, and they don't even mention Luca Third. They're they standing even... right behind him. Right. Because Toto was the ones that um, presenting presented the, the award, and yeah. then they stepped back to let them you know, say a few words. And here he is standing right behind yeah. him, and he thanks everybody but oh. him. Quincy thanks... Uh, Eddie and... Oh, yeah. yeah, that's the problem with being a session cat. I mean, you just don't get your due. No, you don't get your due. All right, well, we covered... Did we cover everything? There was something at the beginning that yeah. you said you wanted to mention about the book. Well, I wanted to say that this book is so well written. Hmm. It is such an easy read. It is such a fun read. And the stories, you really 
feel like you're there. It doesn't come off as like somebody just reassembling their notes. You know, it, mm. it's very vivid. Uh, there's tons of stuff that I did not cover because it doesn't necessarily relate to Yacht Rock. The Van Halen stuff in and of itself could be its own book. And that includes the David Lee Roth solo stuff, you know, Just a Gigolo, California Girls, all that stuff. You need to read this if you're into this era of music. Yachty or naughty, you need to read it. So did Ted produce the David Lee Roth solo stuff too? Yes, he did. God, he was all over the map with his, he's a versatile producer too. Yeah. And there's some absolutely great stories. Yeah. And so the book you're saying, it kind of, it reads like a story. It doesn't read like a sort of a journal. Correct. It it reads like Ted is talking to you, you know, even though he told it. To this guy, it's just, it's it's very very engaging read. Cool. Well, the book came out in 2020. Yep. Again, it's called the Ted Templeman. What's well, Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music? So, that's a pretty thick tome that you got your way through there. It's easy. It's an easy read. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, I can't wait to see what you read next. <laughs> Probably the comics. <laughs> yeah. I think my mind needs to drain a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well. On that note, why don't we uh, move on to the lightning round? I am ready for uh, another lightning round. Cue the sound effect. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are we ever going to say or stop saying cue the sound effect? Or is that going to well, be? Are you going to remember to cue the sound effect next time? Chances are I'd, I'd forget if we don't. All right. All right, never mind. Well, okay. Well, readers first. Um, you read, so you get to uh, do your. Well, I've been doing all the talking. Um, I'm taking a little different tact on this lightning round. So um, I'm going to sit back and let you present your lightning round to me. And then I have two points of interest to add on before we quit. So you're doing this lightning round solo. Really? Yes, you The are. whole thing? I've been talking all this time, oh, man. My voice well, is tired. I've got a few prepared remarks. We have like 20, 30 minutes left. Mm-hmm. So I want to give you an oral history of the band Ambrosia. Hot. <laughs> I've discovered a new song that I think is fairly yachty. Ooh, I wonder if it's the one that I almost uh, used last week. Ooh, I'm hoping I'm beating you to it. But all right, I'm going to start with... Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Does It Float Your Boat. Okay. All right, so I, I apologize. I wasn't prepared to... Uh, I didn't realize I was going to be carrying all the water here for the. Well, you so, don't. You don't have to stretch it out. I'm just. No, I just. It's not. Uh, it's not Ted Templeman specific. But true. Doesn't matter. Um, all right. So here's a tune that I heard. I think on the uh, at Bridge Station. You know, on the, uh, which I think is better music than the Yacht Rock Station. That's what everybody says. <laughs> I heard a tune that I you know I saw come up. I'm like the wings or wings, which you know I don't really like wings. I don't know why. I right. Just, but I mean, listen to the tune. I'm like, this is. Dang yachty. I couldn't convince myself if it belonged on the boat or not. So I think you know the song. Does this song float your boat by Wings? Good night tonight. It is such a great song. The, the bass work that he does in that, um, such cool bass. And they add some. The intro, I mean, not that know. this should count, but maybe I was getting teased by the, like the little island vibe that they throw mm-hmm. in from time to time. 
Well, it's got that uh, almost flamenco uh, guitar solo in there, yep. the acoustic. It does not float my boat from a uh, Yachty perspective at all. It, you know what it serves as? It really serves as what would be a great demo for a Yacht Rock song because I think mm. all of the parts are there. Yes, that's a but good it's way to put it. But it's not really played with any of that. You know, it's a it's actually a bit sloppy. Mm-hmm. You know, by probably because I've become so yacht focused and how precise. You yeah. know, so I hear something a little loose like that, and it catches my attention. And I mean, it's got really interesting bass stuff. It's got some really interesting melodies. It's got some great solos and stuff. But it would need to be completely replayed and re-recorded for it to have a chance at being yachty. Now that opinion. is spoken like a producer. So yeah. there's my tie-in that you did. Ted- you, you want to cover that one now? No, you just okay. Ted Templeman did though. That okay, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, I thought. I think you've convinced me. When you said it was a like a could be a yacht rock demo tape. That's like yeah, yeah. It's like here we we got a sound like that here. And it's like close, but eh, yeah, not really. Um, but kudos to to Wings for finding a tune that I dig because I do like that song. Yeah, there's just a couple others that people bring forth. I'm not convinced that you can you can't sell me on anything from Wings. Even like Silly Love Songs is one I oh, see God, sometimes, no. and Arrow Through Me from uh, Back to the Egg. But no, you can't uh-uh. sell me on any of those. No, nah, me neither. Well, maybe I can sell you on um, my Ambrosia tune. Yeah, because you know I love Ambrosia. I think the mm-hmm. whole world knows how mm-hmm. much I love Ambrosia. And I went through their entire catalog just looking for more Yachty stuff. Somehow I I omitted this one. And it's on the 180 record. Mm-hmm. So it's right there for the taking, hidden yep. in plain sight. Yep. You want to try to guess what it is? is it th- living on my own. It's living on my own. I had written down that a quintessential Ambrosia song where every instrument gets a chance to show. And I think this has been sitting on my list for six months. Now, it's credited with an additional Michael Verdick. Who's that? Do you know? I don't. Hmm. On what? Uh, on, as a writer or as a... It just says Ambrosia, comma, Michael Verdick as the artist. Oh. Hmm. But it's yeah. on the 180 album, which is just, you know, an Ambrosia yeah. record. So right. I don't know. Man, was I happy to find that little gem. Yes. Though. All right. Well, good. We were on the same page there. Do you have right. an off the map? I do. I'm, okay. I'm going to try to make the case that this was um, theme appropriate because I'm going to, I've been sitting on this proto yacht tune forever. Um, and I just never find a way to work it in. But no, since we're talking a good about place then. Yeah, yeah. Well, Doobie started in what year? 72? Yeah. I think this is from 72. Also. Let me ahead, consider then. my notes here. It is. 92, uh, 1972 song written by Albert Hammond. Mm-hmm. And Mike Hazelwood. Um, the thing that's it's proto yacht because you know who all the musicians are. Okay, who are they? If it's proto yacht, think back to L.A. early seventies. The Eagles. No, Wrecking Crew. Oh, Wrecking Crew. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. I think I think more sixties, but you you are correct. They did go well into the seventies. Yep. So here's Albert Hammond's "It Never Rains in Southern California." Seems it never rains in Southern. Yeah, AM Gold. Yep. 
Yeah. You know, Proto Yacht AM Gold for sure, but that's a good one. Yeah. Yes. It's also a good way to kind of just wrap up this talk of like what was happening in Southern California at the time. So, yes. right? It just never rains. Um, all right. Well, that's the lightning round solo flight. Well, uh, I have a couple of add-ons. Okay. They didn't really fit the category. They, they tie back to the book. So that's why I wanted to point out two songs that I'm going to urge people to go and listen to. Uh, we'll play a little snippet of them, but you need to hear the whole thing. So the first one, you asked me about the Doobie Brothers uh, with Ted and with um, Tommy Johnston and all that stuff. And I mentioned that album they did in 2010. It's called World Gone Crazy. Mm. One song on that album did include Michael McDonald, hmm. as well as his wife, Amy Holland, singing on that. Um, and to date, as of this book coming out, uh, he says this is his last production, the last one that he's done. But you need to check out the song that has Michael on it, and it's called Don't Say Goodbye. You don't have to say anymore. We can do anything you want tonight. As long as we don't say goodbye. So that's the last one he plans to do ever, or just the last one he Last one he had done at that time. Okay. Yes. The other one I'd like to point out, because this has a fun little story attached to it, uh, Michael McDonald's solo album, his third solo album. So as I said, Ted produced his first three. So this takes us to 1990. So we're you know well mm-hmm. outside of the Yacht Rock years. Uh, the album was called Take It to Heart. And what you need to hear is the sax solo on a song called You Show Me, which features Stan Getz. Really? In 1990? back does Stan Getz reach into the jazz era? Like 50s? At least 50s. I'm not sure if he goes to the 40s, but definitely 50s. 50s for sure. Um, And then still playing in the 90s. He was playing with Huey Lewis too. Yeah, that has to be near the end for him. um, Hmm. But he was... His session call was was kind of funny because, of course, you know, Stan Getz wasn't going to play for a session fee, but I, I guess it was well above a session fee but it also came with uh a few uh prima donna uh caveats mm-hmm. shall we say he required it that he be picked up by a cadillac limo <laughs> there must be bananas with no brown spots oh my god and a specific yogurt that he wanted for snacking between takes <laughs> <laughs> well you got to keep that pipe smooth <laughs> Oh, oh my picturing gosh. Stan Getz laying down. Okay, I'll do the gig, but I need a Cadillac limo. I need <laughs> bananas with no brown spots, and I would like such and such yogurt. Then and yogurt. Oh my god, what a diva! Yeah, cool. All right, well, that's it. Uh, what well, before we let people go? While you're playing snippets, there, yeah, could you play a little snippet from maybe one of the yachtiest movies of all time? Caddyshack. Oh, I got just the one. Caddyshack? Yep. Hit it. Ahoy, Poloy. 